Wonderful. Well, uh, welcome to Metro Praise Church. We are proud to sponsor this debate between Nadir Akbed and uh, Robert Spencer. There's going to be two subjects that we're going to be discussing tonight, and we would like to make it clear that uh, this is a healthy dialogue. It's, it's not a crusade or a holy war, so let's respect and honor each other. Can I just hear an amen? Amen. Alhamdulillah. And I want to give the uh, Islamic greeting to all my friends. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you. And we're just so happy to have you here and also to bless everyone in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Today's two discussions are going to be dealing with the overall subject of violence in Islam. And the two main categories that uh, the debaters will be dealing with is the first one will be slavery and how women are treated in slavery, whether or not it is okay in Islamic context to uh, treat slave women as property, to rape them and to have, uh, have one's way with them, or do they have rights? So slave women will be the category that they will be discussing first. And then the second category will be the fighting against infidels, non-Muslims. Is it commanded in the Quran simply based on their disbelief? So should Muslims fight non-Muslims simply because they do not believe? So today's overarching subject is Islam violent, and the two categories are dealing with the treatment of slave women in the Islamic context and fighting infidels, non-believers. The debate will be broken up into two sections, equally uh, the same, five minutes apiece at the beginning, then three minutes apiece, then another three minutes, then another three minutes, and then one minute in conclusion. So basically, opening statements, five minutes, three sections of three minutes for context, and then the last closing, one minute apiece. And then after that, there will be a time, a short time, for questions uh, from the audience. Uh, some have come to me with comments. Comments have to be turned into questions. So uh, if you do want to make a comment, you need to let them respond to it. So we would just ask that you would make your comment into a question and not preach to them because hopefully the speakers will be preaching enough to us and to each other. And now a little bit about our speakers. Robert Spencer is a New York Times best-selling author. His newest book is Did Muhammad Exist? Examining the Historical Documents of the Historicity of the Personhood of Muhammad. And Robert Spencer came to the conclusion that he did not exist. And so that is a unique topic. And you can find his website, jihadwatch.org, correct? Jihadwatch.org, Robert. And you can see a lot more work that he's doing. You're very cutting edge. And uh, a lot of Christians and non-Christians alike are starting to look into this. But more famously, what he is known for is the truth about Muhammad, that was his New York Times bestseller, and also the politically incorrect guide to Islam. Those are his New York Times bestsellers. And so let us just welcome Robert Spencer here to Chicago today. Thank you for being here, Robert. We appreciate you. Uh, then our, our other guest from the Islamic perspective, uh, Nadir Ahmed. Uh, lives in Peoria, Illinois. He's on the internet at examinethetruth.com, correct? Uh, Nadir and I have also debated, so he is a prolific debater with Christians, and we debated on the subject of Jesus. He's also a blogger. As of now, I don't know if you've published any works, any books. One book. One book. Thank God for jihad. Thank God for jihad. Are you being true or truthful? 
Okay, so thank God for jihad, and we can visit his website at uh, examinethetruth.com. Let us welcome Nadir here to Chicago. I will be moderating from my position there in the front. It has been decided that Nadir will be starting us off. So let us just welcome them as they discuss the issue of slave women in Islam. One more hand clap, please. Well, I'd like to thank everybody for coming today. I think this is going to be a pretty easy uh, subject. Uh, there simply is no teaching in Islam which teaches, or any kind of justification, which justifies the rape of slave women. Now, you will find examples inside the Islamic sources of Muslims engaging in sexual relations with these slave women. And that raises a very interesting question. Why would these women willingly engage in sexual relations with, these, with their Muslim captors? Uh, and, maybe in, and maybe even in the case that maybe these Muslim captors might have killed their husband or, or their fathers, and I'll go ahead and answer that question tonight. But you know, there's also another interesting question, which is actually more interesting than that question. And that question is, if you look through the Islamic sources, yeah, you'll find that, that there, but you will never, never find one incident of rape, nor any teaching to justify that. It simply is not there. And the Islamic sources are vast. You have nine volumes of Sahih Bukhari, nine volumes of Sahih Muslim, 11 volumes of, of Musnad ibn Ahmed. You have 800 pages of Sirah ibn Ishaq. And then, there's and then there's Tafsir ibn Kathir, the history of Tabari, Al-Jalalain. And yet Robert Spencer will have us to believe that tens and thousands of women are being raped and you can't find one single instance of this in our scriptures and, and in spite of the fact of it being so vast. So that's the question which Robert needs to ask for us tonight, answer for us tonight. How is it that you cannot find one instance of this? But do you know what this historical evidence does prove? It proves there's a moral teaching out there. There is a moral teaching out there which is preventing these Muslims from engaging, from forcing themselves onto these women. All we have to do is just find it. It all has to do with chapter 4, verse 65. Chapter 4, verse 65 of the Quran says that, nay, you can have no faith until you find, until you have no resistance to the decisions of Prophet Muhammad, no resistance, and accept them with yusallimu taslima, meaning full, willing submission. The Prophet of Islam made a decision on this part. And I'll share with you just a couple. For example, the hadith of Safiya. You see, two slave women were presented to the Prophet of Islam, Safiya and another woman. Now remember, sexual relations is permissible. They are now his property. As the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, approached these two women, one of them became hysterical. She began to shriek. She began to uh, scream. She started to slap her face and pour dust on her head. Why? It should be obvious. She thought she was about to be raped. So now we reached a pivotal point in our discussion. 
what did Prophet Muhammad decide in this matter, which Allah said in the Quran, chapter 4, verse 65, that you should accept it with yusallimu taslima, full, willing submission, and let there find no resistance to the decisions of Prophet Muhammad The Prophet of Islam came up to her and said, get this she-devil away from me. And threw his, his uh, cloak over the willing, part, the willing partner, Safiya. And that's when they walked away when Safiya informed Prophet Muhammad that he was a fulfillment of her dreams about the moon falling into her lap. So this is why you can look through the Islamic sources and you will never find any example of rape. So now, I think what Robert needs to do here, he needs to carefully understand what I just said here, and I think he needs to accept that he's wrong. Okay, so I think we've presented enough evidence. And in my remaining time, you know, I always, I, I think it's good that we're criticizing religion. I think it's good that we're asking these questions, but a lot of people don't know this, but you know, the Bible actually speaks on this, and that's not part of the topic tonight. I'm not going to raise it tonight, but I just want to throw it out there. It does speak about this issue, about slave women being captured from the enemy. And, and a lot of people don't know this, but there is a lot of similarities to the, between the Bible and the Quran. But the Bible takes a very different positions on these issues. Like, for example, genocide, killing children in war, um, religious freedom. You will find that the Bible takes a very different position on all this. I know this, we're not going to debate the Bible tonight. I know that, but I just wanted to just throw that out there. That there is a relationship between the Bible and the Quran. I think that's my time, right? Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, let's step back for a minute and, and think about what we're, what we're hearing. That we're talking about slavery. And we're not talking about abstractions. We're talking about human beings with the dignity of the human person being taken captive. Now, what does it mean to be a slave? I think that everyone here knows that a slave is someone who has no rights. A slave is someone who, as Nadir actually just said, are the property of another human being. They are not their own, but they are the possessions of somebody else. Like you might own a chair or a donkey. You own another human being. Now, when you own another human being, that human being has subverted his or her will to yours, not by choice, but by force. And that human being's will is of no consequence there's no importance to it at all. That human being no longer has any right to make choices of his or her own, but has to do what he or she is told to do. Now, the challenge was given in regard to the Islamic scriptures, so I will uh, go to them. The Quran says that uh, the worshipers who are steadfast in prayer, etc., etc., who restrain their carnal desires except with their wives and their slave girls. Now, what's the difference between a wife and a slave girl? Precisely that a wife has a choice and a slave girl does not. There are many, many hadiths in which Muhammad speaks about this. For example, there are many about the uh, taking of captive women in battle or after battles. 
uh, at the, after the Battle of Hunain, Allah's messenger sent an army into Altas, encountered the enemy and fought with them, having overcome them and taken them captives. The companions of Allah's messenger seemed to refrain from having intercourse with captive women. Now you might think, oh, because they didn't consent. No, it doesn't say that. It says, because of their husbands being polytheists. And so Allah the Most High sent down in regard to that, and women already married except those whom your right hands possess. So see, the will, the free choice, the marriage of the captive woman is immediately annulled, and that is part of Islamic law to this day, that when a captive woman is taken captive, her marriage is immediately annulled. She becomes property, she becomes a possession. And so then they became lawful for them to have intercourse with. The idea that these women were consenting to this is ridiculous. They were slaves. They had no choice. The woman who was, who was making a fuss and caterwauling and Muhammad said to get this she-devil away from me, well, you know, he doesn't want the fuss. There was another one who wasn't putting up a fight. Obviously, he went with that. But does that mean that consent is required? Certainly not. And this is not something that is a matter of abstraction for a nice evening discussion here in Chicago. In Mauritania, just today, there was a news story about some anti-slavery activists who, because they oppose slavery and because of the justifications in Islamic law for slavery, which means the abnegation of the will of the slave, remember, they burned some volumes of Islamic law from the Maliki School of Jurisprudence, which holds sway in Mauritania. And they have now been arrested for having done that by the government of Mauritania, because the government of Mauritania is Islamic, holds to Islamic law, thought that it was not only an insult that the books had been burned, but also that the idea that they would be crusading against slavery was against Islam. Not only that, you don't have to believe me in this at all. There was a sheikh, an Egyptian sheikh, who said in, the middle, in June 2011, he spoke about the spoils of war, and he said the position on spoils is clear, that Allah Almighty permitted the taking of spoils on the day of the Battle of Badr. Not a single Muslim has a problem with this. And that that includes slaves, and that specifically includes sex slaves. And he said, you go to the market, look at the sex slave, and buy her. She becomes like your wife, but she doesn't need a marriage contract or divorce like a free woman, nor does she need a, a wali. All scholars agree on this point. There is no disagreement on any of them. Now, how is it that all the Islamic scholars, that an Egyptian sheikh can say that the taking of sex slaves is permissible in Islamic law and, and say all the Islamic scholars are agreed to this? And as it happened, there was also a Kuwaiti, a, a woman, a Kuwaiti female activist and politician, Salwa al-Mutairi, who said around the same time, last summer, stay tuned for that. You know, I did not come here to discuss slavery. That is not the topic for tonight's debate. The topic for tonight's debate is you said that Muslims can rape the female captives of war. Once we're done with this topic, then we can talk about slavery and what some kook sheikh said somewhere, you know, in wherever Mauritania. The right thing for you to do right now is to come up here 
and address and address the arguments which I just brought forth and say, you know what, I'm wrong, and Nadir's right on this, and let's move on. I gave you the example of Safiya. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the Quran in chapter 4 verse 65, let there be no resistance to the decisions of Prophet, of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu What he decides, you must follow. He made a decision when it came to women who do not want to participate, who do not want to engage in sex with that. But you know, some men cannot take no for an answer. So, you know, they got this thing where when a woman says, you know, they, they, you, they need another example. Uh, we have many examples of this for you, Robert. So I'm going to just repeat myself. When this woman became hysterical, she started slapping her face, pouring dust on herself, and shrieking. The Prophet ﷺ said, did not in, well, he did not engage in sex with her. He went with a willing participant. And notice, he didn't answer my question. Remember, I said, if you look throughout the entire Islamic references, Sahih Bukhari, nine volumes of Sahih Bukhari, nine volumes of, 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 um, of Muslim, 11 volumes of, of, uh, of Ahmed, you will never, never find a single incident of rape. Never. Oh, but you'll find little minute things like, like the Prophet ﷺ wore his pants above the ankles. And yet you'll have us to believe that thousands of women are being raped. Let it show for the record tonight that the historical evidence and the historical scriptures contradict what Robert Spencer is saying. So that's evidence number one. So what you need to do, come, you need to come up here tonight and explain how is it that a Muslim is, is allowed to rape a woman when the Prophet ﷺ made a decision on this and said, get her away from me and went with a willing participant. And then there's the case of Rehana, because some men can't take no for an answer. Let me give you another example. Rehana was also a slave woman. She had animosity towards Islam. And it says over there, the Prophet ﷺ stayed away from her. So now I've given you an example of Safiya, Rehana. Do you want another one? How many slave, how many examples do I have to come up here and tell you? And I think it's clear you need to come up here and you just need to say, I'm wrong on this, and let's move on. Okay, I'll say it. You're wrong on this, and let's move on. Now, anyway, Bukhari. You mentioned Bukhari. Narrated Abu Sa'id al-Khudri while he was sitting with Allah's messenger. We said, oh, Allah's messenger, we got female captives as our booty, and we're interested in their prices. What is your opinion about coitus interruptus? Now, at this point, the prophet could have said, why... I can't believe you are ra raising such a question. I can't believe you would suggest such a thing. First, you have to obtain their consent. The prophet actually said, do you really do that? It is better for you not to do it. No soul that which Allah has destined to exist but will surely come into existence. In other words, go ahead and have intercourse with them completely. You don't have to do coitus interruptus. They are your possessions. There's nothing in here about consent. They're slaves. It is assumed that there is no consent. Now, continuing what I was saying before, uh, we have, remember, the Mauritanian kooks who have arrested, they're actually the government of Mauritania, who have arrested the anti-slavery activists. We have that. We have the Egyptian sheikh, who I mentioned before, and we have this Kuwaiti. Now, what she says is very interesting, Sawa al-Mutairi. She says, 
I was working with a young man who liked women a lot. I was sympathetic to his situation and was dedicated to my work. I was given the opportunity to visit Mecca. And when I did so, I brought up this man's situation to the muftis in Mecca. The muftis in Mecca, the holiest city in Islam. I told them I had a question. What is the law of sex slaves? The mufti said, with the law of sex slaves, there must be a Muslim nation at war with a Christian nation or a nation which is not of the religion of, the religion of Islam. And there must be prisoners of war. Is this forbidden by Islam, I asked, asking the muftis of Mecca. Absolutely not, they responded. Sex slaves are not forbidden by Islam. On the contrary, sex slaves are under a different law from the free women. The free woman must be abs 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 completely covered except for her face and hands. But the sex slave can be naked from the waist up. She differs a lot from the free woman. While the free woman requires a marriage contract, the sex slave does not. She only needs to be purchased by her husband, and that's it. She only needs to be purchased. She doesn't need to consent. That's rape. We're talking about rape tonight. We're ta not talking about slavery, says Nadir. That's what this is, rape. I got 30 seconds. So I can conclude by saying that she went back and said that she asked the religious experts in Kuwait. So she's asked the muftis in Mecca and the imams in Kuwait. And they told me the same thing. And she says, I hope that Kuwait will enact the law for this category of people, the sex slaves. And she recommends going into Chechnya and capturing the Russian women and using them for this. This is nowadays. As I said, the right thing to do, just admit you're wrong. But he didn't do that. Um, obviously, remember what I said. If you look through the canonical scripture, of all the, the Holy Quran and everything, you will never find any incident of rape. And because of that, he's starting to tell us what some mufti said. Some guy said, oh, well, uh, they don't need consent. Is this really uh, the topic of this discussion, what mufti said? But you know what? I can bet you 100 bucks. Well, of course, I don't really bet. I'm just saying. He doesn't even know what, I'm, what reference I'm quoting from. You know the Hadith of Sophia? Do you know what reference I'm quoting from, Robert? Well, do you know what you know what reference I'm quoting from? Yes. Which one? Yes. Okay. Okay. You see, he the thing is, he's ignorant of the, of, of 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 the sources here. He has no idea of what I'm talking about. Now, I think it's pretty clear here. I don't need to, um, you know, bring this up again. The Prophet, the Quran says inside chapter four, verse sixty-five of the Quran, the decisions which Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam makes, you must accept them with you sallimu taslima, and let there be no resistance to his decisions. He made a decision when it came to the woman who was going hysterical. He said, get her away from me. Rehana, the slave woman. Another example, she showed aversion towards Islam, and he stayed away from her. This is why when you look in the Islamic sources, inside these scriptures, you will never find any instance of rape because they lived with Prophet Muhammad They followed his example. When they saw Prophet Muhammad do that, they, stayed, they would never do that because Allah said they are not believers. They don't have iman. They don't have faith. If they don't accept your decisions with yusallimu taslima, full willing submission. Let's give another slave girl, Jawaira. 
Joera was a slave woman, and she was presented to some average Muslim. And she says, what? You're, I, I'm better than you. Give me someone better, because uh, obviously I'm very beautiful, and uh, you're not my type. He said, okay, fine. They took, uh, the, jo, he, the, the Muslim took the case to Prophet Muhammad and said, he doesn't want, she doesn't want to be with me. What should I do? So the point here is, look at the examples, one after another. This, this, if you notice, this woman was not raped. They did not have any sexual relationship. When the woman said, no, I don't want to be with you, they said, okay, let's go to the Prophet Muhammad And actually, the Prophet accepted that as an argument. said, okay, that's fine. And that's actually, that's when he offered himself to her. Okay? And she said, I accept that offer. And she was from the slave captive women. So the only thing which I'm going to tell Robert, I follow Prophet Muhammad I follow the Holy Quran and the Hadith. And what Allah said in the Quran, you must accept it. Uh, about the Hadith that I don't know anything about, this is the story. Safiya, was, her husband was, was, was killed in battle. And Muhammad took her and actually, while the battle was still raging, had sexual relations with her uh, at the time that this was still going on. There was no consent involved. She was just offering less resistance. Uh, the other woman... Rehana actually was just given to somebody else. Uh, it wasn't as if, oh, she doesn't consent and so she's free. Uh, that was actually hardly the case. There were some of the companions of Muhammad who actually negotiated with him and told him, well, you know, if you prefer this one, then we'll take that one because you, after all, are the prophet. And uh, th these things, you know, you take precedence. The uh, Quran says that the prophet gets a fifth of the spoils of war in, in any battle, and he got the pick of the women. But the woman was still a slave, and she was still raped by somebody else. So she wasn't any better off. And in reality, the Islamic scriptures and the, the Quran, the Hadith, they don't give any rights to women at all, essentially. And a woman is essentially the, 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 the possession of a man you have polygamy, you have the uh, authorization of the beating of the wife, and even Aisha, Muhammad's favorite wife, says that uh, he struck me on the chest, which caused me pain, which was something that uh, I didn't see in your booklet there. And anyway, the uh, problem that we have when we're talking about slavery, I think, is that Nadir is trying to hold out the idea that the slave has some rights. But that goes against the very definition of what a slave is. If a slave has rights and can refuse to do something, then a slave is not a slave. And the unfortunate problem is, is that in Islam, there is a huge dichotomy running all the way through it between the believers and the unbelievers. And the Quran in chapter 48, verse 29 says, Muhammad is the apostle of Allah. Those who follow him are merciful to one another, but harsh or ruthless to the unbelievers. And this is a manifestation of that, that these women are not Muslims, as we heard from the Kuwaiti uh, uh, activist and from the Egyptian sheikh. And so if they are taken captive, they have no rights. They're no longer married and they have no, there's no concept of consent in regard to how they are to be treated. It is never mentioned whatsoever. And so the big question here tonight in regard to what we're talking about now is that Nadir is saying, well, you don't see the mention of rape, the four words, the four letters, R-A-P-E, but you see all kinds of notices about sexual slavery and slavery in general. And so what I would say is, you don't see any mention of the word consent either. 
And that is the key distinction that we are making, that a slave does not have the right to refuse. And so if you have sex slavery in Islam, if you have slavery in Islam, then you have rape. Yeah, he's ignorant. He doesn't know the sources which I'm quoting. What what book am I quoting out of? You don't know, do you? All right. You see, he's just he's just trying to wing it. He has no idea what my reference here is from the Hadith of Safiya. But you know what? Um, I'll let you I'll let you know in the very end. And obviously, you know, I, I think the debate was really over a long time ago. And as for all of these other. Uh, references, you know, talking about ruthless with the disbelievers. You know, this is stuff is all off topic. I can't juggle all these topics at one time. He says he, he actually lied to us tonight. He said inside the Hadith concerning Sophia, no consent was involved. First of all, he's ignorant. He has no idea what source I'm quoting from. He doesn't even know what I'm reading from. He's just trying to wing it tonight because he now realized he's beat. First of all, if you listen to the story I just told you, Safiya walked away with Prophet Muhammad and that's when she informed him that he was a fulfillment of the dream of the moon falling into her lap. Okay? He says, women has no right. This is way off topic here. And then he tried to rationalize how a slave has no rights just for the mere fact that they have no right to refuse and stuff like that. But I gave you the example of Jawaira. Jawaira had every right when she said, I don't want this guy. So obviously, you know, you can keep quoting examples after example after him. He's just not going to accept it. You know, I, I don't know. I think he feels like he's at war with radical Islam and somehow if he just accepts, okay, Nadir, you're right or something like that, he's going to lose this war against Islam or some, some baloney like that. But anyways... Uh, so this whole thing about, you know, and, al and also he, I think he also fabricated something else about uh, that the issue about the word rape is not there in our scripture. Do you understand how big our scriptures are? Nine volumes of Sahih Bukhari and you can't find one instance of rape in there? This is ridiculous. 800 pages of Sahih Muslim. Al-Jalalain. Al-Qurtabi. And no, we're talking literally about millions of pages, and you can't find no rape in there? It's ah, no big deal. So obviously the historical evidence is contradicting what he's saying. The example of Prophet Muhammad, he gave the example with Safiya, Juwaira, and, um, and Rehana. He said that Rehana was raped later on. I challenge you right now, show me that. This is a lie. Rehana was not raped. And, I ha and, 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 you know, when we have, and I don't know if I've mentioned to you, when you have a debate with me, you've got to bring your references. So I'm going to ask you to come up here tonight and quote the reference that, you, that Rehana was raped. I would love to see that, okay? And remember, uh, and, and please tell me what story I'm quoting from the, the Hadith of Safiya. As far as that goes, that's in Ibn Ishaq. Dr. Abdul Latif from Al-Azhar says that the reason to take slaves is the sexual propagation of slaves, which will generate more slaves for the owner. The great Islamic scholar Ibn Taymiyyah, he says, the one who owns the mother also owns her children. Being the master of the mother makes him the owner of her children, whether they were born to a husband or whether they were illegitimate children. 
Therefore, the master has the right to have sexual intercourse with the daughters of his maid slave because they are the daughters of his property. So now we're supposed to believe that the government of Mauritania, an Islamic state, the sheikh in Egypt who says that all the Muslim scholars agree on sexual slavery, the muftis in Mecca, the holiest city of Islam, and in Kuwait, all got Islam all wrong. But Nadir Ahmed, he's got it right. Well, that's just wonderful. I, I wish that you were indeed the caliph of the Muslims, but unfortunately you were not. And the reality is that slavery is justified in Islam, sexual slavery is justified in Islam, and therefore the rape of the sex slaves is justified in Islam. This is an unfortunate fact. It's an unpleasant fact. But the reality is, is that women suffer for the, for, uh, over this to this day. This is not a joke. This is not an intellectual parlor game. Women are suffering from this in Muslim states where slavery is broadly tolerated all across North Africa and it goes on under the table in many, many other areas, including Saudi Arabia. And women are being kept as slaves right now and being raped because these things are amply established by the Quran, which says that a man can have intercourse with his four wives and with the captives that his right, hands possess, his right hand possesses, and by the Hadith of Bukhari, which he keeps mentioning, and others that I quoted earlier, which make it very clear that Muhammad took for granted that slaves could be taken and kept and had intercourse with, and no mention whatsoever. There's not even the concept coming close to the discussion of anything like consent. And so does Islam sanction, which is the first topic here before us tonight, does Islam sanction the rape of captive women? That's quite obvious. It is not just me talking, but all these misunderstanders of Islam all over the world who need to be set straight by Nadir Ahmed. Yeah, Robert Spencer actually is uh, trying to do some takia tonight. He's trying to deceive us between having the between two issues, and we shouldn't get confused between them: the right to have sex with uh, with women captive birth versus rape. These are two different things. The Prophet showed by example. No, if the woman does not want to engage in that, you walk away from her. And remember, chapter four, verse sixty-five, which he did not respond to. It said that. You must accept the decisions of Prophet Muhammad with no resistance. Okay, and he keeps quoting about you know the Mecca, the Muftis of Saudi Arabia. The Muftis of Saudi Arabia didn't say you could rape them. Remember, he's trying to trick us between having the right to have sex with these slave women versus rape. But as you saw tonight, was just a retreat out of the scriptures, the Holy Quran, the Hadith, the Sirah, the biography of Prophet Muhammad let us show for the record tonight, he couldn't show one instance of rape in there. And that's because that was the example of the prophet. I got your Quran right here. Who restrain their carnal desires except with their wives and slave girls, for these are lawful to them. That's 23, 5, and 6. 424, and all married women are forbidden unto you, save those captives whom your right hand possess. It is a decree of Allah for you. That's 424. 3350, prophet. We have made lawful to you the wives whom you have granted dowries and the slave girls whom God has given you as booty. These things are about 
the abnegation of the will of human beings and their subjugation to the will of another person who can have his way with them in any way he wants. That's what a slave is. These things are obvious from the scriptures of Islam, from the Quran, from the Hadith, all these other things he's mentioning indeed also back it up. These Tafasir, uh, Qurtubi and Jalalain that you keep mentioning, they only expand on these verses and explain that slavery is indeed justified. This, the, the record is clear. These books are available. Go and look for yourselves. Thanks. Okay, we have time for uh, two questions apiece. Uh, I would prefer to keep them evenly, uh, two to uh, Robert, two to you, to be fair. That doesn't matter what perspective you come from, Islam or Christian, it doesn't matter. But we will go two on each side. So, and it has to, uh, yes, and be related to the topic for some reason, the mic here. Here we go. A little taller. Okay. And... Uh, I think I'm just going to have to choose you as if we were in school, and I will be fair. So uh, since Nadir started off the discussion, we will uh, start with uh, uh, Robert for questions. So who has a question for Robert? Uh, I gave the doctor my word I would start with him, so he may come. Can you help him with the mic a little bit higher, please? You can hold it? Okay. And, and make sure it's on for him. And then the speakers will have to come to the microphone. And I think for this time, so we're not here till tomorrow morning, that we will keep uh, maybe responses to uh, one minute apiece. Is that fair? One minute? Okay, so it will be to him, and then you'll get one minute, and then Nadir, you'll have a minute to respond. Is that fair, Nadir? Okay. Oh, hold on. Can, let's turn on the mic. We're going to turn it up. Turn up the volume. Is there a green light? Test, test. Okay, put it up louder, please. Cause one, two, one, two, a little bit louder. Some of that's my time. Because I, I, no, no, no. You, you can take it. I actually it. tell you the truth. Um, some people know me. Some I'm Professor Islam Studies for two years. I translate the Quran in English, and I'm translating into Hebrew now. To tell you the truth, this is the poorest kind of discussion and debate, argument I ever heard in my life. Very poor, very dull. Then, now, about slavery. Islam did not invent slavery. Islam inherited, speak what the Bible speaks about it. Also, I would like to hear what Jesus Christ said about it. What Jefferson, how he treated his slave, George Washington, how he treated his slave, 200 years of American history, the churches, you have separate church, one for black slaves and one for whites. Muslims, we don't have that. Sir, can we just get to a question? I know you're a professor and you can no, teach, no, but just a question. Well, that's a question. So I would like to hear Mr. Spencer comment what the church of America, all of them, talked about the slaves being whatever, lynched, being raped, being killed. I really would like you to comment on that, okay. rather to comment on what the Quran says. I want to hear what modern... Okay, so the question is, what does the church have to have its position on slavery? Thank you. Yeah, in America specifically. And yeah, uh, you know, uh, strictly speaking, uh, we are off topic because this was, a top, this was a 
uh, debate about Islam. That's unfair. I'll answer your question. Yeah. I'm just saying you're off topic. Because it doesn't matter if Christianity is the most evil thing in the world. The question before us is about Islam. But in, when it comes to Christianity and Islam regarding slavery, it's absolutely true. Slavery is a great moral evil that was tolerated by both. There's no denying that. That's absolutely true. And in the American South, the churches justified slavery by, by reference to Christian scripture. Absolutely. However, at the same time, it was within the church in England and in America that the abolitionist movement grew. And it was the only abolitionist movement in the history of the world up to that time. William Wilberforce in England, Garrison, William Lloyd Garrison in the United States, and others, they were Christians. And they understood that the Christian idea of the universal dignity of the human person ultimately ruled out the permissibility of slavery. Whereas in Islam, there is such a strong dichotomy between the believer and the unbeliever. And the unbeliever is so stripped of human dignity that no abolitionist movement has ever arisen in Islam. I hope it does someday. But it was by Christianity that slavery was abolished in the United States. Slavery is way off topic, but it's very interesting to see how we got off topic. Uh, how this uh, discussion got off topic was from the Hadith of Sophia. Because the question which Robert Spencer was supposed to answer for, uh, for us tonight is how could we as Muslims disobey the decision of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu when he went to, when, uh, to uh, when, when, the, when the woman who was uh, getting hysterical and he approached her, he says, get her away from me and went with a willing participant, he could not refute that. He couldn't show us, no, 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 you should still rape those women in spite of the fact the Prophet ﷺ made a moral decision. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said inside chapter 4, verse 65, you don't have faith, you don't have real faith unless you make yourself 100% um, in conformity to the decisions of Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. He couldn't refute that tonight. So we got on the topic of slavery and what the, some people in Mauritania said. Okay, so let's try not to preach and let us try to ask questions according to the topic, having sex with uh, slave women. Now the question now will be addressed to Nadir, and I see hands, and I'll go to the one in the back waving the hardest and the most vehemently. Wonderful. Okay, let's get the mic for you, sir. Thank you. Uh, my question is to Nadir Ahmed. Uh, my question is, does a nine-year-old, can a nine-year-old give consent to sex? It's way off topic. It's off topic. Okay, well. Because it's related to. Uh, it, I believe. It's related to rape. Nadir, he's asking a fair question, a fair question. about a nine-year-old. Okay, let's, you know, let's, 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 not, let's not call names. Let us, let us, well, it. Well, he, well. To be fair, to be fair, okay, sir. I understand. I understand your question. I understand your question. Can we, can we please have order here? Can, gentlemen, and 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 those of you here, can we please have order? That's all I'm asking. Let us, inshallah, let us show that we all have a peaceful spirit here. Okay. I heard his question. We know there's name calling. We're not allowing that to happen. The gentleman that asked the question to Robert Spencer was a bit off topic. You told me that. But we conceded to it. This question, I'm trying to make it on topic for you, and I'll just clarify it in a way that may not sound so offensive. 
if a nine-year-old girl is able to be given in marriage to the prophet, is that consensual? That's, I, we know where his question is coming from. So would you please come? And then from this point on, can we just stay a little bit more in, in a peaceful decorum, okay? So Nadir, you have a minute. Thank you. Yeah, well, you know, all I'm pointing out is I think why the audience is getting hostile and why he called me a monkey and things like that is because, uh, you know, um, Okay, we're going to, I'm going to ask one of our, um, our brothers here. I'm looking around with one of my brothers. None of them are here. Sir, would you, for my sake, just not respond to him right now? We, are, we, we welcome you here. We know that you have passion. But would you just please allow this to happen? Because it, it makes everybody look bad. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Now, dear, we'll start your time again. I apologize. Okay? I apologize. Just, let's just leave the name thing alone. Thank you. Go ahead. Okay, yeah, um, absolutely. We look inside the canonical scripture. We see that the, that the marriage with Aisha was a consensual relationship, okay? Uh, and she was one of the wives of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. But this is, again, way off topic because it goes back to the point of Safiya, Rehana, Jawaira. This is the topic. So many slave women who were shown that when they did not want to engage in having sexual relations with their Muslim captors, they they didn't these uh, the Muslims did not force themselves on them. That was the example of the Prophet Muhammad How much how many more uh, examples do I have to give? So I think wh wh why we're getting off topic is because the evidence, the historical evidence, Sahih Bukhari, Sahih Muslim, all canonical scripture, you will find men engaging in having sexual relations with us captive war, but no example of rape ever, Abadan. So I think because, you know, there, he was not able to refute the evidence, there's no way you can go against the decisions of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Was it one minute or two minutes? Uh, one minute to the to question. Oh, it's just uh, one minute. Okay, thank you. Okay. Yes, thank you. Uh, just uh, to give some context here, the gentleman is referring to the uh, consummation of the marriage between Muhammad, the Prophet of Islam, and Aisha when Muhammad was 54 and Aisha was 9. He contracted the marriage when uh, she was f he was 51 and she was 6. This is according to Bukhari in several places. Bukhari is the collection of traditions of Muhammad's words and deeds that are considered most reliable by Muslims and normative for Islamic law. And so you have the story repeated several times in Bukhari that Aisha was 6 when the marriage was contracted and 9 when it was consummated. And this is the most reliable authority for Muslims. Obviously, a nine-year-old does not have the ability, psychically, to consent to such a thing and even to understand it fully. All right, uh, Robert Spencer's turn. Uh, who would like to ask a question to Robert Spencer? I, I don't know your name, sir, but uh, I recognize you. What is your name? Sabil? All right, would you come and ask the question? It's good to have some of our Muslim apologetic friends here. Can we just welcome Sabil? We're just glad to have him here. Glad to have you here, my friend. Yes. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Let's make sure your mic is on. Can we get a test, uh, Manny? It's on. All right, Bismillah. In the name of Allah, the most beneficent, the most merciful. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Peace and blessings of God be upon all of you. 
Well, looks like a lively debate, but the question that Nadir was asking uh, my dear friend uh, Spencer was Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he's been mentioned in the Quran as the best example to follow in many, many verses, right? And I'll come to that question right away. In chapter 33, verse number 21, that he's the best example for all the believers to follow. So when Nadir, when he gave like two, three, four examples, uh, Mr. Spencer, about how to deal with slaves, if she refuses you, leave her alone. So that is the example that we follow. It's not, it's not about forced rape, it's not about rape. It is what to follow about the prophet. And when it comes to slavery or slave girls, even in that uh, aspect, we are supposed to follow the prophet. So I think he has a very good example, so I don't know what your response would be. You have not yet produced a solid response that the prophet allowed slavery, but by his, but by his example we know that he gave them a choice. If they do not want to come near to you, it's okay. So what would be your better response to Nadir when he gave you so many other uh, responses from the Quran and from the Hadith? Well, Nadir is being very selective in what he's telling you about Muhammad. Muhammad actually did take slave women captive. Uh, one of the, the most prominent among the women that he had was Maria the Copt, who was a slave who was a gift to him from uh, a, a ruler in Egypt. And uh, there, here again, the thing is that the stories about Maria the Copt and the stories about the other slave women that Muhammad took, there is never any mention given of consent on their part. The stories are rather straightforward, that he took them, he had intercourse with them, Maria the Copt bore him his son Ibrahim, who died at an early age, but there is never any idea given that she had to refuse him or could refuse him. She was a slave. As I have already explained many times, the whole idea of being a slave is that you do not have no in your vocabulary. My dear friend Simon Deng, who was a Christian in Sudan who was captured by Muslims and enslaved, he said he always had to say yes. He could never say no. You know, I feel like um, I'm talking to a wall. He said, these, there's no mention of these women having consent. I gave you the example of Jawaira. She said, I don't want to be with you. I'm too good for you. And the Muslim uh, said, oh, is that right? Okay, they took the example. They went to the Prophet Muhammad, وسلم, and she said, okay, you're right, Jawaira. And that's when he offered himself to her. There's an example of uh, what you're asking for. Uh, the, the whole thing, I mean, remember, the sunnah of Prophet Muhammad وسلم, is not only verbal, but as well as nonverbal communication. So the example, both verbal and nonverbal, this is the sunnah, this is the way of Prophet Muhammad وسلم, that's what people follow. In the remaining 15 minutes, you know, I also wanted to mention the Bible does speak about the same topic, about this, and it takes a very different position than that of the Quran. I hope that maybe the Christians will allow a discussion and debate on this, on the captive of women according to the Bible. Can you rape them or not? And I think what you're going to find is, yes, it is true. Thank you. Okay, and our last question in this section will be for Nadir, who would like to ask a question. I see uh, Christina Pillman in the back. Come on forward. And I appreciate us having the decorum that we're having now. Thank you. Can we just leave Hello. the mic on and then we'll mute it back there, please? Thank you. My question, Nadir, is um, how would you advise, well, since the topic is does Muslim teach 
or does Islam teach violence? No. Rape? Okay. So, okay. So, how would you advise a Muslim woman who is being raped and abused by her also Muslim husband? What counsel would you personally give her in terms of what actions and foul and keys to be referencing from the Quran? Right, and this is actually, do I get one minute or what? Yes, please. It's a very, very good question because this is a, um, both actually the Bible and the Quran speak about this. There's a hadith inside Sunan ibn Abi Dawood where a woman came who was beaten. Now, this once again, this is kind of off topic, and, um, but it's, it's sort of related. And, and she came to the Prophet complaining. And, her, and, her, and, she, and when the Prophet saw her condition, he says, what happened to you? And when she explained to him, he said, he said to her husband, Get your things and get away from her. And the Sahaba, or the Sahaba said, is that right, Prophet, oh, Messenger of Allah? He said, yes, take your things and get away from her. Now, what's interesting is inside the Bible, actually, uh, I know it's kind of off topic, but, you know, divorce is not permitted. Uh, domestic violence is not a permissible reason for divorce, according to the Bible. And a lot of Christian women have actually suffered as a result of that. So... The, oh, the, uh, get away from that man, from this hadith. It was clear, get away from them. But again, we should perhaps talk about the issue of rape, though. I think it's important. It's interesting to note that in Pakistan, the uh, laws regarding rape are part of the hudud laws that come under uh, Islamic law. And uh, chapter 24, verse 4 and 24, verse 13 of the Quran specifies that to establish adultery, there have to be four male witnesses who saw the act, actual, the, the actual act taking place. And that uh, then in Pakistan, because rape is considered all part of the same crime of zina, of sexual uh, immorality, that it is judged according to the same canons. And there has to be the four witnesses or it cannot be established. Thus, a, a, and a woman's testimony is disallowed. The victim's testimony herself is disallowed in Islamic law in such cases. And so consequently, Sisters in Islam, which is a reform Islamic group, has actually uh, estimated that as many as 75% of women who are in prison in Pakistan are actually the victims of rape. But they could not produce the witnesses and their testimony was disallowed. And then if they have a, a child or something, then it's self-incriminating for adultery. So it's a very bad situation. Okay, let us give a hand clap for both. Uh, in this time, that concludes this section of uh, slavery and, I mean, excuse me, sexual uh, rape and slavery with females. Now we'll be moving on to our second section, which is uh, fighting against non-Muslims, infidels, uh, for the sake of them not being Muslims. Is that true? Can Muslims uh, subdue and fight against non-Muslims uh, just based upon their belief? Uh, last time we started with uh, Nadir. Do we start now with Robert, to be fair? Or you, you want to be you again? Okay, then uh, let's start this new section off. As Nadir comes, let's give another hand clap, Nadir. Five minutes. Well, this will be uh, another easy debate. Um, if you look inside the Islamic uh, canonical scriptures, you will never find any example of, of, of fighting against non-believers because they are non-believers. So everyone understand what is the topic here. Okay, now, 
The question which I'd like to raise tonight is how can someone make such a mistake into thinking that Islam is being aggressive and fighting people just because they're non-believers? Well, I think it's because certain people make certain presuppositions before even opening up the Quran. A common presupposition which many people make is that Christians, the Christianity and Christians is a religion of peace, love, and tolerance. So when you see a verse in the Quran which says, and fight against the believers, and, and subdue them against the disbelievers, I'm sorry. People think, look, Islam is waging war against peaceful, tolerant people. And from that perspective, I definitely see what you're, well, how people can make that uh, type of assumption. But there's only one problem with all of this. And that is, during the life of Prophet Muhammad wasalam, the Christians were one of the most violent, intolerant, and sadistic people ever to be recorded in world history. Sixth century Christianity during the life of Muhammad condemned religious freedom and subjected heretics and infidels to blood-curdling torture. One example probably is from this era is when they decided to exterminate the entire Jewish race. Nothing could save them except conversion to Christianity. It was Surah 9 verse 29 which saved them and Jihad which saved them from the genocide at the hands of the Christians. Now some people might say, uh, you see, why are you bringing this history up? You're, you're bringing this up to show, aha, see, you Christians are just as bad. Look at yourselves. Look how violent you people are. That is not my argument. That's silly, and I don't want to argue silly things up here. Here's the reason why I'm bringing this up. Because this is part of the historical method of research and analysis. The historical method tells us that we should study the scripture from its historical context. It is dishonest. It is dishonest to divorce the Quran from its historical context. Okay, the historical method tells us that there are many factors that can contribute to a historical episode. For example, like jihad verses. Okay, the historical methods tells us that we should not look at evidence based from just one point of view. You've got to look at the other, at, at, at the other factors, okay? And there's a second reason why I'm bringing this unpleasant fact up. Because I'm showing you how some people can make such a, a mistake as to think that Islam is waging war against peaceful and tolerant people. That is just historically, scripturally false. That's, that's not the case. And unfortunately, Robert Spencer, if you look at his books, and I have not read all of them, but I've read some of them. <laughs> and if you look at them, you will see he makes this, this, this historical blunder. He thinks that, that the Christians are all peaceful and loving, and so when you read the jihad verses, there you go. You see, Islam is waging war against peaceful people. So that's why I'm bringing it up. Now, some people will say, aha, the fact that the Christians were violent, that's not the reason why we have jihad. Uh, just, just very quickly, how much of you believe in that? That the fact that the Christians were violent and in a clear and present danger, that's not the reason why the jihad verses are there in the Quran, to confront that. Well, my simple response to that is, that contradicts the historical method of research. The historical method it tells us that it is just nonsense to say that the political, economic, and social factor at that time doesn't influence the scripture. Yes, it does. But let's just go along with it tonight. Let's hypothetically say the Quran teaches fight against them because they're disbelievers. Fine. Put that in the proper historical context. And we'll see that 
is it this verse? It was the, the threat, the looming threat out there is what influenced the author to write that statement there. Okay, so the question I want to have asked Robert Spencer, and I've already submitted the question. The mere fact that the Christians tried to exterminate the Jewish race during this era, Robert, do, would you accept that this is enough evidence to establish the fact that the Christians during the life of Muhammad were a clear and present danger that must be confronted? If not, the, the, the consequences would be catastrophic. Is that enough evidence, or do you need more? Did you understand? Within that era of Muhammad, oh, that yeah, yeah. That's I've decided not to show up for this part of the debate. I'm uh, instead bringing on a guest star, uh, Sheikh Mohammed Saeed Ramadan Albuti, who is the author of the book Jihad: How to Understand and Practice It. He is an Islamic scholar in Syria, and uh, he explains that the Shafi'i school of Islamic jurisprudence which is centered in Egypt in Al-Azhar University, which is the foremost, most prestigious and influential institution in Sunni Islam. And the Zahrites, which is another school, proclaim that the fundamental cause of, of jihad is to terminate paganism. Putting an end to paganism and atheism becomes the primary task of jihad. According to this group, the view of this group of fuqaha, that is, Islamic jurisprudence, who support their argument by the, uh, actually the Quranic verse that uh, Nadir mentioned, 929, which says, fight at those who believe not in Allah, nor the last day, nor forbid what has been forbidden by Allah and his messenger, and those who acknowledge not the religion of truth, that is Islam. So in other words, Muslims are commanded to fight against those who do not acknowledge Islam. Among the people of the book, that's primarily Jews and Christians, until they pay the jizya with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. So Al-Buti says, as stated, the followers of this school, the Shafi'i school, the most influential school of Islamic jurisprudence in the world, argue that the two Quranic verses, I didn't read the other one for reasons of time, but I'll get back to it, I'm sure, uh, confirm that the objective of jihad is to kill the infidels. And such an objective does not stem from the infidels' attack on Muslims as much as from their infidelity. In other words, because they're not Muslims, because they are not faithful to Islam. And so... Uh, what we have here is another in the group of misunderstanders of Islam who are Islamic authorities who Nadir is rejecting tonight. In the first part of our debate, he rejected the muftis of Mecca as well as Kuwait, Egypt, and Mauritania. And now he is about to reject the Shafi'i school of Islamic jurisprudence, which says exactly what he is denying tonight, which is that Islam teaches that non-Muslims must be waged war against simply because they are non-Muslims. That is very clear from here. The objective does not stem from the infidels' attack on Muslims as much as from their infidelity. The group believes that non-Muslims must be fought until they repent and accept Islam. As Muhammad himself said, I've been commanded to fight against people until they confess that there is no God but Allah and that I am his messenger, which is based on chapter 8, verse 39 of the Quran, which says that Muslims should fight until religion is for Allah. That is, until Islam holds sway over the world and the unbelievers are either converted to Islam or subjugated as inferiors, as dhimmis, under the rule of Islamic law. And so this is precisely because they are non-Muslims. Nadir spent a lot of time saying, well, the Christians were very bad and that's why they were fought. But these passages don't say anything about fight the bad Christians 
fight the evil Christians who might be doing things that he's making up in history. In reality, it just says to fight these people because of their infidelity, to fight them because they are non-Muslims. And so I'm sure that here again, the Shafi'i school is yet again, yet another group of misunderstanders of Islam. And by the end of the evening, I expect that Nadir Ahmed is going to be the only authentic Muslim in the entire world. But reality is different. Here again, just as in the first part, we are not talking about an abstraction or a dinner party conversation. We're talking about people's lives. And Muslims, energized by these understandings of the Quran and the statements of Muhammad, are waging war against unbelievers all over the world today. In the Philippines, in Thailand, in Kashmir, in Chechnya, in Bosnia, in Nigeria, all over the Middle East. And they all seem to have gotten Islam wrong. And they think that Islam teaches that Muslims must wage war against unbelievers because they are unbelievers. Whether they're good people or bad people, whether they are sweet or sour, whatever, they have to be fought. And this is an imperative that comes from the highest authorities in Islam, from the Quran itself, from the example and the words of Muhammad, and from all the schools of Islamic jurisprudence. And so you note he's saying you can't disconnect the Islamic scriptures from their entire context, from their historical context, I would say absolutely not. You indeed cannot. And you also cannot separate them from how they are understood by Muslims themselves. And this is where Nadir's view, while comforting, is entirely eccentric. Uh, you know, I think um, what we see here tonight is another hasty retreat, running away from the Quran and the Hadith. There is nowhere, nowhere, not, and he quoted chapter 8, verse 39, but actually chapter 8, verse 39 just says who to fight and until when the cessation of warfare. But did we hear from him anywhere from the teachings of Prophet Muhammad وسلم, or from the canonical hadith or any scripture which teaches to fight people because they are non-believers? Did anybody hear that? Now, you know, when I do debates, I always miss some points here. So if I do miss a point, make sure you raise it up in the question and answer. But I didn't, I didn't hear anything like that. He went to the Shafi'i school of thought because he can't find that in canonical scripture. First of all, I actually studied, uh, you know, the Hanafi, Maliki, and even the works of Ahmed ibn Hanbal. If you look at the works of the Salaf and all the different madahid, you will not find anywhere over there which says you should fight disbelievers because they are disbelievers. That's the subject of tonight's discussion. But why did you run away to some school of thought? You should be quoting the Quran. Then you should be quoting the Hadith if you can't find it in the Quran. But notice he ran away from both. So, you know, you don't have very long up here. You have to produce a statement which says, fight the non-believers because they are non-believers. And again, we found another uh, cowardly retreat. I asked a very important question, the historical method of research. I asked during the life of Prophet Muhammad وسلم, were the Christians a clear and present danger? Is that enough evidence that the mere fact that they tried to exterminate the Jewish race, does that make them a clear and present danger that must be confronted? Was that a yes or a no answer to that? Could you answer that question? Uh, can you come up and answer that? So we're, we're going to wait for his answer. So chapter 8, verse 39 tells us who to fight, but it doesn't tell us why to fight. 
Now, let's go to the Quran. Let's go to the Quran because the Quran actually tells you why a person should fight. Chapter 4, verse 75. It says, and what is wrong with you? That you fight not in the cause of Allah. So this is talking about offensive warfare, not defensive. Because telling go out and fight for why? You hear those people who are crying, O oh Lord, rescue us from these people who are oppressors. And send us someone who will rescue us, send us someone who will help us. That's the reason the Quran gives why people should fight and why you should fight the disbelievers. Because as I showed from the historical perspective, it was the disbelievers who were the most violent, sadistic, and intolerant people ever to be recorded in world history. The jihad verses came to, came to confront this challenge, and it was an imminent threat. So make sure you come up and answer my question, Robert. I'm starting to wonder if my friend Nadir and I are in the same room because uh, I came up here and I gave you Quran, chapter 9, verse 29, which says here again, fight those who believe not in Allah. Fight those who believe not in Allah. The question is, do you fight against people who don't believe in Allah? That's the question here. Does Islam say you fight the unbelievers because they're unbelievers? Fight those who believe not in Allah, nor the last day, nor forbid what has been forbidden by Allah and his messenger, and those who acknowledge not the religion of truth, which is Islam, of course, in this idea, even if they are of the people of the book, the Jews and Christians, until they pay the jizya with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. He said, I didn't give you Quran, I gave you Quran. He said, I didn't give you Hadith, I said, I have been commanded to fight against people until they testify that there's no God but Allah and that I am his messenger. And he said, until, if they do, then their lives and their property are guaranteed. In other words, if they don't, confess that Allah is the God, only true God and Muhammad is his messenger, then their lives and property are not guaranteed. In other words, the Muslims will fight against them and kill them and take their property. And so here again, we have Hadith, we have Quran. I got plenty more. We have 9.123. Believers, fight against the unbelievers who live among you and let them find harshness in you. Believers, fight the unbelievers. Obviously, the context of the fight itself is belief and unbelief. The reason for the fight is because they do not believe. That is the whole point of the verse itself. It doesn't say, fight against those evil people who supposedly want to exterminate some other people. It doesn't say this. There is no idea of these things that Nadir is talking about in the Quran itself. Chapter 47, verse 4, when you meet the unbelievers... What, give them a hug? No, cut off their necks. Strike at their necks until you have crushed them. And then bind their ca your captives firmly. When you meet the unbelievers, strike at their necks. It's not when you meet the evil unbelievers, when you meet the genocidal unbelievers. It's when you meet the unbelievers. And so, at very least, even if one were to grant, which I'm not granting, Nadir's contention that this was all about fighting against people who were doing evil, the problem is, is that the Quran is written in such a way as to admit of a much broader interpretation. And, obviously, looking at the news every day, Muslims understand it in that way. And they fight against Buddhists in Thailand who are perfectly peaceful people. And the, the, the Prime Minister of Thailand thought, the way that we're going to fight this, we're going to drop origami all over the Muslim areas. I mean, we're talking about really peaceful, benign, harmless people. And they're being massacred by Muslims because they are reading the Quran and it says, fight the unbelievers, not fight the unbelievers who aren't nice to you.
Okay, so I think this is the last time I'm going to ask him. If you notice, he would not respond to my question. So we see just another cowardly retreat. The, co the answer is absolutely. The Christians during the life of Prophet Muhammad were a clear and present danger that if not confronted would unleash a brutal campaign of genocide, torture, and barbarianism until all knees are bent to Christ. Chapter 9, verse 29 came to meet this challenge and fought so that the Muslims can have the right to exist. Remember, I keep asking, this is the third time, I, he won't answer that question. So all I'm showing you, we should study the scripture from its proper historical context, which he doesn't want to do. And as for what's going on in different parts of the world, I'd love to talk to that about with you. I'd like to talk about those terrorists who invaded Palestine in the name of the Bible God and stole the land away from the Palestinian people. I'd love to talk to you about those terrorists, but that's off topic. Okay, because if you look at your terrorists, they're far worse than the Bin Ladens and all those people out there. But let's stay on topic. He quoted chapter 9, verse 29, I, where it says, Fight those who believe not in Allah, nor the last day. Okay, the 929 is simply marching verses. It's telling you who to fight, but it doesn't tell you why to fight them. Did everybody see that? It just tell, These are just marching verses and telling you who to fight. And then he says, he quoted a verse of the Quran where it says, and let them find harshness in you. Uh, and all I have to do is quote the other part of the Quran where Allah says inside chapter 60, verse 8, that Allah does not forbid you to deal justly and kindly with those who fought not against you on account of your religion, nor, nor did uh, drive you out from your homes. Okay, so you have to read the Quran in its proper context. Okay, and then he said, I have been commanded to fight until people testify that there's no God but Allah. Which, which in Arabic is, umirtu an nas hatta yushahidu la ilaha illallah. It says umirtu, not umirtum. It is said, I have been ordered to fight, not you have been ordered to fight. Do you see the difference? So your argument fails right here. And then it said, and fight the people. It didn't say disbelievers. Uqatilun nas. Who are the people here? The scholars themselves do not know. It's not defined who they are. If a war veteran comes up and tells you, I've been ordered to fight people, you probably will ask him, well, who are these people? Why have you been uh, ordered to fight them? So again, your argument fails. And then the verse says, Hatta yashahidu la ilaha illallah, until they testify. So here's important here. What's important here inside this, uh, don't get confused between why you should fight them and the point of the cessation of war, the conditions of ending the war, okay? So once again, we find all failed attempts into trying to produce one statement in the Quran which says, fight because they're disbelievers. Did you see what just happened there? That was, I love this. I mean, you know, just a little while ago, we were talking about rape, and we were told that Muhammad is exemplary. In chapter 33, verse 21 of the Quran says, Muhammad is the excellent example of conduct, the model for emulation. And what Muhammad did, that's what we have to do. And so he says, I have been commanded to fight against people. Oh, no, no, that's only him. We don't have to do that. That's only him. Wait a minute, I thought he was the excellent example of conduct. I thought we had to do what he did. What happened? Suddenly he's not the excellent example of conduct? This is, you know, it really is such a difficult religion to understand. Anyway, uh, as far as chapter 9, verse 29 goes, Nadir is saying that uh, this verse about fighting against those who do not obey Allah and his messenger 
and do not forbid what he has forbidden, even if they are of the people of the book, that uh, that's only uh, tangential or something to, uh, it's only about how you should fight or who you should fight, but not why or whatever it was. But in any case, uh, here again, you know, don't listen to me. I happen to have uh, some tafsir on that verse, some Islamic commentaries, authoritative Muslim commentaries on that passage. Here's Ibn Juzai. He says that the verse, fight those who do not have faith, do not obey Allah and his messenger, it means this, he says, it is a command to fight the people of the book in denying their belief in Allah because of the words of the Jews, Ezra is the son of Allah. The Quran claims that Jews say that. No Jew has ever actually said that, but the Quran claims it in chapter 9, verse 30. And the words of the Christians, the Messiah is the son of Allah. And so in other words, you hear that again? Let me say, a, a command to fight the people of the book because of their words that the Muslims find objectionable, because of their beliefs that the Muslims find objectionable, that the Christians say that Jesus is the Son of God and the Jews supposedly say, although they don't really, that Ezra is the Son of God. That's why, says Ibn Juzay, according to this verse, m Muslims must fight them. So in other words, they must be fought because they are disbelievers. And so here is yet another Islamic authority who is ex illustrating exactly the point that Nadir is saying is not Islam. And so we have Nadir's own private Islam, which is very nice and sweet and benign. Unfortunately, he is uh, going against the mainstream of Islamic texts, teachings, and tradition. Uh, not only that, but Ibn Juzai goes on to say, when this ayat, this verse was revealed, the Messenger of Allah set out on the expedition to Tabuk to fight the Christians. Tabuk was up in uh, northern Arabia or southern Syria, and there was a Byzantine garrison there, a garrison of troops from the Eastern Roman Empire, who had not uh, attacked the Muslims, probably didn't even know there were Muslims at that time. And Muhammad led, it was the last expedition of his career, led a group of people up there to fight them. Excellent example of conduct. Okay, so he tried to uh, pull a bait and switch on us tonight. Remember, I said if you look in all canonical scripture, you'll never find any example of uh, any order to fight people because they're non-believers. So basically, he's conceding to that fact tonight. So he made a pathetic attempt to somehow stay into this debate. He quoted Ibn Juzay. True, some people might have made that comment. But see, Robert, what we're trying to get you to understand is that if you look in canonical scripture, the teachings of the Quran, the teachings of Prophet Muhammad you will not find any uh, statement in there to fight those because they're disbelievers. It's just not there. It's not my private version of Islam. No, it's not the case. It's, um, the problem here is it's missing from our scriptures. There is no such teaching as that. But once again, I'll, and I'll keep bringing it up, Notice how he's running away from the historical context of the Quran. I have proved tonight the mere fact that the Christians tried to exterminate the Jewish race. That makes them a clear and present danger. And what people don't understand is that during this time, there were no options. You had to fight. You had to confront this threat or else you will have been destroyed. And thus the jihad verses came to meet this challenge and fought 
so that they could have the right to believe in what they want, a fundamental right which born-again Christianity condemned during the life of Prophet Muhammad Okay, So I don't have any kind of private Islam. As for the comments of Sayyid Muhammad al-Buti and all these people, not the topic. We need to discuss what's in canonical scripture. What does Islam teach? Okay, uh, And no, there is no consensus opinion that disbelievers need to be fought because they're disbelievers. That's also another lie. So in my remaining one minute, let me share with you what are some of the reasons why Muslims should engage in offensive warfare. Chapter 4, verse 15, to help those people who are oppressed. What is wrong with you that you do not fight for those who are oppressed and you hear their voices? Oh Lord, rescue us from these people who are oppressors. That's the first reason. Chapter 22, verse 40 of the Quran. Okay, can you guys hear me? Chapter 22, verse... Do you want to wait for this to come aside? Do you want to just wait for this to get down? Or? Okay. Okay, how's that? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Chapter 22, do I get uh, 30 more seconds? Okay, okay. Yeah, sorry about that. I think it's raining out there. Uh, yeah, as I was saying, uh, I got two minutes here. Yeah, let me share with you what does scripture teach? What does the Holy Quran teach? Not my private interpretation, but what Islam teaches. Chapter 22, verse 40 of the Quran. You should fight to protect churches, monasteries, and synagogues where God's name is being revealed. Who was tearing these churches down or these synagogues? Well, they were the Christians, the idolaters, the pagans. They were the ones who were intolerant of other religions. And we know that from the historical references which I actually quoted. Another reason, we should, as we see from the Hadith, we should fight to secure the safety of the non-believers. Did everybody hear that tonight? Why should you fight? To secure the safety of the non-believers. Now, go back to the history and find out the significance of this. You see, the disbelievers used to rob, murder, and pillage each other. This, the Quran was revealed in a, in a period of time which is known as the Dark Ages. Okay? And that's what life was like in the Dark Ages. So why can we not find a clear statement which says, in canonical scripture, fight because they are disbelievers. That's not there. That's why he had to run to Ibn Jozi. Find it in our books. Find it in what Prophet Muhammad taught. Find it in the Quran, and you cannot do that. So let's look at another reason. We, should, we will fight any enemy of theirs. That's another reason why Muslims are called to fight. Any enemies of the disbelievers, and they had horrendous enemies. Um, one example would be the Vikings, which existed during this time. This is the reasons why Muslims should fight in canonical scripture. But you will never, never, never find a verse or any teaching in Islam which teaches to fight because they are non-believers. True. The Islamic scriptures say, fight the non-believers. But it's not because they're non-believers. And I think by him running to this Saeed Muhammad al-Buti, who I don't even know who he is, and Ibn Joziah trying to use their statements, we can all have a good laugh at him because he can't find that in scripture. You know, uh, I have a four-year-old son, and he, he hates spinach. 
and he just denies its existence. If it's on the plate, he just says, I say, eat your spinach. He says, there's no spinach. How can I eat it? There's none, none there. And that's kind of uh, uh, what, we're having, what we're seeing tonight, because I will now quote again for the third time, chapter 9, verse 29 of the, of the Quran, which says, fight those who believe not in Allah. Fight those who believe not in Allah. He was just saying that I could not produce a verse of the Quran that said, fight against the disbelievers. Fight against those who believe not in Allah. Now, he did quote 2240 and uh, say that, that, that the, point, what, the point of the fighting was to secure the safety of not just the Muslims, but the non-Muslims. And that's absolutely true. But what he did not tell you was that this same verse, 929, it goes on to say that you must fight the unbelievers because they are unbelievers until they pay the jizya, which is a tax, with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. And that became the basis, this, this tax that the Muslims were exempt from paying, but the non-Muslims had to pay, and this idea that the non-Muslims had to submit to the rule of the Muslims and feel themselves subdued. They became, the non-Muslims became the source of the livelihood for the Islamic State. As a matter of fact, the Caliph Umar, the second successor of Muhammad as the leader of the Muslims, actually says in a hadith, be sure to collect the jizya because it is the source of livelihood for you and your descendants. It was the chief source of income for the great Islamic empires of the Middle Ages. And when the Jews and Jewish and Christian communities were bled dry and were impoverished by having to pay these draconian taxes, then those empires went into decline. So, of course, they wanted to guarantee the safety of the unbelievers because they were the source of their livelihood. Islam does allow the non-Muslims to take a place in the Islamic State as Zummis or Dimmis, the so-called protected people, who as long as they submit to the rule of the Muslims and, are, and, and accept the denial of basic rights and are deprived of all sorts of things that we would take for granted, then they can live and practice their religion within certain bounds. And so, yes, that, then they cannot be harmed. But if they complain about this inferior status, or if they rebel against it, then this so-called contract of protection is forfeit, and they can lawfully be killed. So it was, it's once again self-interest, and the interests of the Muslim community in general, that motivated this, not some sort of a uh, beneficent or magnanimous attitude toward the unbelievers against whom the Quran says that the Muslims need to be harsh or ruthless, as I've already quoted. And so this is, uh, here again, clear evidence from the Quran, 929, that Muslims need to be fought, non-Muslims need to be fought because they are non-Muslims, as evidenced by the schools of jurisprudence and the scholars of Islam whom I've quoted. He hasn't quoted any, you notice. Okay, so let's read Surah 9, verse 29 together. And, let, and tell me when you hear that you should fight the non-believers because they're disbelievers. Fight against those who believe not in the last day in Allah, nor the last day, nor forbid uh, that which has been forbidden by Allah and his messenger, and those who acknowledge not the religion of truth among the people of the scripture until they pay the jizya with willing submission. As for that you are supposed to be some kind of third-class citizen and inferior status, then you're a pathological liar. And I'll just go ahead and call you that right now, and I'll debate you on that, as, as a matter of fact. Uh, but anyways, um, so as you saw, he did concede to us tonight that, yes, Muslims should fight for their safety, to protect their safety. 
Thank you. That's what we've been trying to tell you all night tonight. Okay? And so, but then he came up with a conspiracy theory because we need you as a source of livelihood. That's not taught in scripture. He made that up. Okay? But anyways, a, a lot of things he said tonight really didn't have any basis. Any, but it was kind of off topic because there is no statement in Islam which says fight because you are disbelievers. That's a myth and a lie. And I'm glad that I got that opportunity tonight to expose that lie. And I'm glad he confessed tonight. Yes, Islam teaches to fight to protect the safety of the infidels and the disbelievers because as I pointed out from the historical context, the non-believers were one of the most violent, sadistic, and tyrannical people ever to be recorded in world history. The mere fact that they tried to exterminate the Jewish race is just one of these many horrid examples. The, the Muslims actually, if you read Sahih Bukhari, they lived in constant fear of the attack of the Christians. So, they, and remember, he ran away from the history of the Quran, which is so important to understand that scripture. Uh, I think that's over a minute, uh, right? Okay, I, I, I was looking at my time here, so uh, go ahead. I don't mind. I don't mind. Remember, there is no spinach. It does not exist. Uh, this is really uh, kind of bizarre because if you take all the chest thumping and claims of victory and claims that I've conceded and claims that I haven't answered this or that, out of what Nadir says, there's really nothing there at all. I have shown you from the Quran, from Muhammad's words, and from the Islamic jurisprudence, and from the tafsir of the Quran, that, the, that Islam teaches that Muslims must wage war against non-Muslims precisely and solely because they are non-Muslims. And this is something that Muslims are acting upon. And so in conclusion, I will repeat yet again that the problem with Nadir is that Muslims just don't understand Islam the way he does. All too many understand it the way I've been explaining it tonight. I wish every Muslim were like Nadir without the nastiness, but the reality is that there are Muslims who are killing non-Muslims all around the world today because they understand it to be an imperative that is commanded to them by Allah. Thank you. do this without name calling. Amen. Alhamdulillah. We're going to do this inshallah without name calling. And uh, we're going to do two each just like last time. And uh, we will be starting with Robert Spencer. And uh, this gentleman has been patient on the front row. Thank you, sir. On topic because Nadir said so. No, I'm just kidding. On topic would be good. No, I don't want to go. I, I'm really not very pleased with this type of... I'm sorry. Can we get you on the microphone, sir? Please, just louder. Can we make it louder? Now, Thank the you. question is, I don't know how many of you have watched that series that PBS uh, aired about the violence in religious scripture. And it, it was so amazing, and especially uh, Philip Jenkins, who was the professor in uh, Penn University, and some of the other Christian scholars, they came up and they say, and this is not what I'm saying or anybody else is saying, this is that the most violent religion According to the scripture, this is, is, is Christianity. And comparatively, and this is again, I'm not saying that. This is can, we just, can we just have the and question? His question his, his, just his, the question. That, that Islam is more like a defensive uh, struggle against the injustice and all those things. Okay. Whereas, 
Whereas a Christianity is totally, he says, it's very close to genocide. Can you form that and, to a question? And that's why he, he quoted the numbers, chapter 31, verse 14 to 17. And, and, and it says that, look, that the Moses in the Old Testament, it says, bring all the women that ever, that never been laid with the men and keep the young Sir, can we working <laughs> for the soldiers. Can, can we and have I'm the question? Saying, can, you, can you form a question, please? question is how would you frame that which religion is violent based on the scripture rather than quoting the different things from different sources you understand the question what 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 is more violent christianity or islam from the scriptures if you look at uh, the world today there are armed jihad groups all around the world who are fighting warfare against unbelievers in the name of islam and explicitly in accord with under, their understanding of Islamic scripture. There are the idea that, you know, it's, it's become a commonplace of people that they know, that, you know, you, you, you see people waving the Quran and holding AK-47s and shouting Allahu Akbar. You never somehow see people holding the Bible and saying Jesus Christ is Lord and blowing themselves up. Uh, there are no armed groups of Christians that on the basis of their the Christian scriptures that you purport to quote and so on uh, are waging violence around the world. Certainly they're Christians who've done evil things, but they do not justify them and cannot according to Christian teaching. Well, I think uh, he must be uh, forgetting about those uh, 30 million terrorists who interpret the Bible to go and invade Palestine and steal the that land away from the Palestinians because God said so. And of course you see in Bosnia when Christians raped 50,000 Muslim women for no other reason but because I'm a Christian and you're a Muslim. So we have several examples we'd love to share with you. But it's kind of off topic, but actually he had a very good point, the person who was at the, at the microphone. He said, even the offensive jihad verses, if you study the historical context, remember, Robert ran away from this point the whole night. From the historical context, the Christians especially were one of the most violent, sadistic, people ever to be recorded in, in world history. They were a clear and present danger that must be confronted. If not, the consequences would have been catastrophic. They would have wiped out the, the, this new community of Muslims. So when we look at the historical context, we will see, yes, there is a definite reason why the jihad versus Israel was to confront an imminent threat. Thank you. Okay, if we could have a question that would be on topic that both of the speakers would agree is on topic, we would have accomplished a lot tonight. So let's give that another chance. Now it is Nadir's turn to receive the questions. Can I see some hands that would like to ask uh, Nadir a question? Uh, the gentleman in the striped shirt there, uh, please come. Trying to get some uh, visitors to our church. We welcome you here. And uh, this one will be for Nadir. Houses of worship they're defending. 
Good question. Nadir, do you understand the question? Okay. He's getting the verses ready, so to be fair, that's, that's what you asked him to do. Okay, take your time. Yeah, that's a, and you know, if you look at the reasons, both from history and the scripture, it's very clear that Muslims were actually called to defend the disbelievers. And that was actually taken from chapter 22, verse 40. And it says, for I had it not that Allah checks one set of people by means of another. So God raises up these jihadists out of the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, monasteries, churches, synagogues, and mosques, wherein God's name was revealed, will have all have been torn down. History tells us it was the born-again Christians that were doing this type of atrocities. Okay, that was chapter 22, verse 40. And then there's chapter 60, verse 8, where it says, It is not haram. God does not forbid you to deal kindly with people who have not fought against you on account of your religion. This is how Islam spread through the four corners of the earth, because word got out that the Muslims will defend and protect the Christians and the, and the local communities. And as Robert rightfully pointed out, actually, in tonight's debate, it were the Christians, Jews, and idolaters which funded and supported jihad because Islam offered them religious freedom and protection. In uh, Sahih Muslim, Muhammad says, and this is number 4294, that uh, when you meet the unbelievers, invite them to accept Islam. If they accept, then don't fight them. If they refuse, invite them to pay the jizya. In other words, to accept the Islamic social order, which renders them as inferiors and denies them basic rights. And if they accept that, then don't fight them. And if they refuse both, then go to war with them. And so uh, this is the idea that the Muslims must fight against the non-Muslims by the word of Muhammad until they either convert to Islam or submit to the rule of the Muslims. If they submit, then their churches and synagogues and temples are preserved as long as they pay the tax and accept the denial of rights that Islamic law mandates for them. And the tax being the source of the livelihood of the Muslims, according to the Caliph Umar, is of cardinal importance for that. Okay, one last final question from Nadir. Um, this gentleman here in the front. I mean, uh, for Robert. Yes, yeah, sorry. This gentleman in the front. Thank you. You have uh, presented as if Quran uh, gives a blanket, uh, you know, okay to go ahead and kill and fight uh, non-Muslims. How do you reconcile that is religion. Uh, elsewhere, you know, chapter 60, we uh, mentioned that, uh, you know, you, you did not address. And also the context in which all of these uh, verses that they were mentioned, it says, fight against those who drove you out of your homes, in, uh, as in Makkah, who tortured you, uh, robbed you of your property. Those are the context. It provides right in the Quran. Because historically also, uh, a, what your interpretation doesn't hold up. For example, Salauddin Ayyubi, Saladin, the way he behaved, he could have massacred the uh, Christians in Jerusalem. What does he do? Uh, I, I think uh, you just need to uh, look at the Kingdom of Heaven, the movie, uh, you know, Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, the Ottomans, 
when the uh, Christians were persecuting the... Uh, I think he understands. The, the, the question is, why didn't the... If the yeah. Muslims could kill unbelievers, why didn't they wipe everybody yeah, out? They were... Reconcile, yes. reconcile yes. Ottomans sending their naval fleet to rescue the, Christ, uh, the we, Jews who were being... We, he understands the question. Okay. You have plurality of examples, and he understands. Thank you. In Islam, there is defensive jihad and offensive jihad. And yes, you have to fight against those who drove you out of, their home, out of your homes and so on and so on. That's defensive jihad. Offensive jihad is what we've been discussing at some length tonight in uh, centered on chapter 9, verse 29, that says that you fight against those who do not believe in Allah until they pay the jizya and so on. Now, uh, 2.256 says there's no compulsion in religion. It's very important to note that forced conversion is forbidden in Islam, although that's a law often honored in the breach. The non-Muslims are not forced to convert to Islam. They have to submit to the Islamic social order. Uh, Maududi, a foremost authority in Islam, says, the purpose for which the Muslims are required to fight is not to compel the unbelievers into embracing Islam, because there's no compulsion in religion. Rather, its purpose is to put an end to the rule of the unbelievers, so that the latter are unable to rule over people. See, if there's Islamic government all over the world, and we're all submitting to Islamic rule, then it's fine. Actually, uh, he tried to kind of take a cheap shot tonight by quoting a hadith where he said, I have invited you to three courses of action. You should have mentioned that in the debate, not in the question and answer time, so I could respond to that. That was given in the context of war, that when you go and meet the enemy, you invite them to three courses of action. So that, that, was, a, that was a little bit of a cheap shot there. But we, now let's see what Sirah Ibn Ishaq says. If you offer us peace, we will accept it. Did everybody hear that? Did you hear that? If you offer us peace, we will accept it, and we'll make you partners in peace and war. And then he tried to quote Maududi. He's quoting Maududi because he cannot answer chapter 22, verse 40 of the Quran, which says you should fight to protect churches, synagogues, and monasteries, and protect religious freedoms. Because he can't answer that you should fight and answer the call of the oppressed people, chapter 4, verse 75. He can't answer because you should fight because to protect and secure the safety of the non-believers. That's why Islam spread to the four corners of the earth because people liked that message. What people were looking in the sixth century was security. Islam offered them that. And all they had to do was pay a small tax for this service. So, I, you know, I, I'm not a very good debater. I always miss some points. So if I miss some point, let me know. Okay. Well, we have the last question of the night. Uh, now going uh, to Nadir. Uh, who would like to ask that last question? Let's go to the gentleman there. Uh, sorry, Metro Praise folks, I've, I've tried to uh, honor our visitors here. Nadir, maybe we'll uh, come back at another time with some of his friends. Uh, we would love to see everyone come back. Uh, wonderful. Let's wait for the mic. Uh, yes, uh, there we go. Uh, the, I heard you know everything, but the thing that I have a question for you is how come you did not explain to him or the audience members the ayah in the Quran where it says that if you kill one human, it doesn't say Christian, it doesn't say Muslim, it doesn't say. Okay, so why didn't you say that? Because, right, because actually there's many better verses. That's the reason why. And because the subject of tonight's discussion isn't that. He was supposed to show us where in Islam it says fight and kill non-believers because they're non-believers. Chapter 9, verse 29 failed. It was a failed attempt because chapter 9, verse 29 just tells us who to fight, but it doesn't tell you why you should fight them. 
I have been giving the same reason over and over again. It's so clear from the scripture. Offensive jihad, and that's what we're talking about tonight, it should be fought to, to, to secure the safety and to end conflicts. And as we saw inside chapter 5, verse 4, verse 75, which teaches you should answer the call of those oppressed people. God said, what is wrong with you? Why don't you fight for those people? You see them crying, oh Lord, rescue us from this people whose towns are oppressors. Send us one who will answer this call and save us. Jihad was the answer to that call. And as for all these things which are going on today, like I said, I'd love to talk about it, but that's not the topic. The verse in question is chapter 5, verse 32 which says, therefore we ordained for the children of Israel that he who slays a soul, unless it be in punishment for murder or for spreading mischief on earth, spreading mischief on earth is a very elastic and important concept in Islam that carries quite a bit, shall be as if he had slain all of mankind. Going on to 33, those who wage war against Allah and his messenger and go about the earth spreading mischief, there it is again. Whatever kind of disturbance or mischief that may be is often defined as having to do with spreading other religions than, other than Islam, and so on. Indeed, their recompense is that they should be done to death or crucified or have their hands and feet cut off on opposite sides. And so just to quote about how it's uh, to kill a person is to kill all mankind, it, it, well, the verse doesn't end there. And it goes on, and all that business about crucifixion and amputation is not quite so nice. Thank you. Can we give both the debaters a hand clap today? Thank you. That concludes our debate, but Nadir allowed me to be the host. He said that I could have two minutes in conclusion. Uh, just to share the heart of Metro Praise in this church and the heart of why we are here. So I have two minutes on myself and then we will close out. And I appreciate you staying here. I just want to thank everybody for coming. It is wonderful to see the families here and the children. It shows that we can get together in safety and in a peaceful place and share ideas. Sometimes we get a little fired up and say things we regret. Uh, my wife helps remind me of the times that I do that. And so, uh, you know, I just want to thank you for allowing this to happen. And I also believe that these need to continue to happen. So Metro Praise here as a church is open for these dialogues. I wrote a book uh, called Helping Muslims See Christ in Christianity. Eddie Berto, would you hold it up, please? It is a free gift to anyone here today. I have nine books, and I would prefer to give them to our visitors uh, first and then to anyone else after that. Uh, the heart that I have is I was uh, born into a Christian family, but by the time I was 18 years old, I was already doing drugs. I was a high school dropout. But my mother was praying for me that I would come to know Jesus Christ. At that time that I was at my worst, November 5th, 1995, I came to my mother to ask her to put me in a hospital. She said, if you'll ask Jesus for forgiveness, he will give you peace. I then mentioned to her all of these other religions that I had studied up until that time, Buddha, Muhammad, and so forth. And she said, Jesus Christ is the only one who died for you and rose again from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father waiting to come back and he promised to live in your heart. He is the only one and so today I would like to encourage you with that same message. John 3.16, the most famous scripture of all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. My friends, Jesus Christ saved my life. That was 15, almost 16 years ago. Today I'm happily married, the pastor of this wonderful church. And I would invite you to do the same. Jesus Christ is both my Lord and your Lord and the Lord of the nations, more than a prophet, the Son of God, and if you want to see a debate that Nadir and I did on that, you can see that. Would you just give a hand clap to Metro Praise hosting you here today? 
Thank you. Now, would you stand up with me? I want to greet our Islamic friends as they go. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you. Go in peace. And I want everyone to do this before you go. Find somebody that's different than you and shake their hand and tell them that you are glad they came here today. So find somebody that is a Muslim. If you're a Christian and a Christian and a Muslim, God bless you. There are free drinks and refreshments in the back.